Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt, here with Nick Gibson. It's been a while since you've been on. The last one was divorce. We talked about divorce, and we're mm-hmm. talking about nothing that has to do with divorce this time. Uh, do you get as much hate mail when I'm not on the podcast? We get more love when you aren't on, and we get a ton of hate when you are, because people hate you. Yeah, I'm cool. just kidding. That's not that's not true. We don't. <laughs> people like you probably more than anybody else. Um, so, and they probably get annoyed by you more than anybody else. So, here's the thing. Here's what we're talking about today: is sorry, my life. We're going to be talking about what does it mean to be created in the image of God. And I've been wanting to do this one for a long time because it honestly pisses me off that so many people just use that statement as a blanket over anything in Christianity. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, you're just just created in the image of God. I'm created in the image. We're all created in the image of God. And, Mm -hmm. and, And it's like, what does that match up with? Because, well, we can get into that. There's a lot of we're made in the image of God, therefore blank. You can just kind of like... What? And it feels weird for me for Calvinists to say it. We're all created in the image of God, but some of us are chosen and some of us aren't, which means if you're not chosen, then why are you created in the image of God? Because God would want to choose somebody who is created as himself. And right? Maybe? I don't know. So we're gonna, these are some of the things we're going to be talking about in this podcast. But first thing I want to do is tell everybody that this podcast is on YouTube. This is the first one I'm doing with Nick. That's You can see him and... And revel in his beauty. I was sure you were going to go into a sponsor bit. Okay. <laughs> or and also, this is sponsored by Simple Trees. <laughs> Nick Gibson, Simple Trees. Um, if you want your trees cut down, call Nick. Okay. So we're going to start with the first question. Is obviously the broad question. Is the, the question that this entire podcast is based mm-hmm. upon is what does it mean to be created in the image of God? You give us whatever you first comes to your head, and we can just go off that. Yeah, so obviously a lot has been said about this. Um, so I want to say a couple things before I just really briefly. And that is, Scripture does not say. So when you read Genesis, it's sort of assumed that you'll get it. Mm-hmm. So it just says that God made the man and woman in his image. In the image of God, he created them, right? And so it uses the word for likeness and the word for image. Mm-hmm. And those words are relatively generic words. Yeah, You're supposed to sort of like just understand what they mean. That like there's a likeness between the two. That yeah. like um, some people have said that um, the word image has like an emphasis historically of like engraving, like you would engrave a coin, because Jesus says that right when they say um, he says about Caesar, he's like, show me a denarius whose image is on it, who's mm. engraving, and mm. they say, well, it's Caesar. He's like, well, give to Caesar what Caesar, give to God what's God's. Sure. And most people think he's making a pun there on the image of God in us, that God's image is on yeah. us, but Caesar's image is on the coin. So give Caesar the coin, but give yourself to God. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So in that sense, um, image and likeness are kind of supposed to speak for themselves. Okay. Um, there's a lot of discussion about like, like what attributes constitute the that's image. The, that's the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. And I think that it's, I think it's totally fine to discuss those, but I think that to say that any of those sets of properties make us in God, God's image is probably a mistake. I, um, one theologian I like basically says it's better to say that we are the image rather than that we have the image. Okay. But like if he, God created us in his likeness, then what we are is his likeness. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess where I, th- I can kind of see where this is going to go. And maybe more so than the question of what does it mean to be created in God's image, the, the whole question might be how should we view ourselves? Mm-hmm. Because the, I've been struggling with this because I'm think, I think about 
and I'm probably on the opposite spectrum of most people. And I feel like maybe you're on this spectrum as well, this side of the spectrum where I think about myself in terms of I'm an evil sinner who deserves to burn in hell for eternity. And I suck all the time, no matter what. And like the reason why I'm not a good Christian is because I can't be a good Christian because I suck and I deserve to go to hell. Maybe you think that way a little bit more. I feel like you probably do it more so on that spectrum. Yeah, mostly because of my psychological problems. Like I'm more prone to think in terms of self-hatred. Yeah. And so I connect with that side of Christian theology. And so, but that's, that is rooted in some realities of scripture. And yeah, oh, absolutely. The other half of this is like people who annoy me, but they're like, I'm, I'm, I'm a love child of God. God loves me so much. And I'm I like, know my identity in yeah, Jesus. I know my, it's all yeah. about identity. And, and that's all it's true. It's also true, but it all just true. pisses me off because yeah. it's like, it feels like you don't understand your depraved sinner and yeah well, and for me i don't understand right. that i'm a love child right like, that i mean that's the issue it's yeah. like there's a number of things in christian doctrine that we're meant to hold in tension and that's really hard for people to do because yeah. we we like we don't like to hold a view attention we like to say because of a b is true yeah and and you just you it's you it's that's you can't do that simplistically you can yeah. get a clear idea in your head but it, it might take a little thinking. Yeah. It take, might take more than five minutes of concentration. So let's talk about then, because the, this is my first question that I was going to ask, and let's just go off this, is okay. what it, being created in the image of God or being made in the image of God or that we are in the image of God, mm-hmm. how should we how should we interact with that? Is that in a, do you think that's in a sense of like, like um, emotional attributes or like, okay, so my personality is different than your personality. Mm-hmm. And so both of them are part of God's personality or like, are there, is there personal personality a- attributes? Is it physical attributes? Does my nose represent a certain part of God's mm-hmm. being that, or does my ears maybe, I don't know. Um, or is it like a spiritual attributes or is it a bunch of different attributes or is it no attributes at all? And we've just destroyed them through sin. So what, what is it? What, did, what does that mean? Yeah. I think it's important to try to, st- one of the things I say about theology is you need to keep track of how speculative your theology is. If you believe the scriptures are the word of God written. So like, f- for example, in, in one place in scripture, it says that because human beings are made in God's image, they shouldn't be murdered. So there's a certain doctrine of dignity, right? Like you don't have the right to snuff out another person's life. So there's a doctrine of dignity. There's an anti-murder doctrine sort of built into this meaning of the image of God. Genesis 9 explicitly states that, Mm -hmm. right? So that's not speculative. That's explicit, right? When you get onto things like, um, because we're made in the image of God, we should all be socialists because everybody should get everything they need because they have dignity. I have a friend who told me that Jesus was a socialist. So Yeah. And so like, you just need to realize that like, okay, if you think that you think that maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe that's right. But that's like, that's a few steps from the explicit statements of scripture. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so I think if we're going to like focus on what scripture explicitly says, Mm -hmm. it starts with that we're in the image of God, which one of the things that that means Wayne Grudem argues this in his systematic theology and, and Wayne is a New Testament scholar who became a theologian, so he tends to be really close to the text. And he says, the best way to interpret this is to read the rest of the Bible. Hmm. You start out with this idea, humans are made in God's image, right? Mm-hmm. At that point in the Bible, we know almost nothing about God. All yeah. we know at that point in the Bible is that God created. Yeah. So he apparently precedes creation. 
So mm-hmm. it's reasonable to think he's everlasting. Mm-hmm. He's somewhat like all powerful because he can speak all of creation to existence. He's so powerful that his very word does things, mm-hmm. right? We know a few things, but we don't know much more. Yeah. And so, and yet we know that he makes the humans in his image. Yeah. So in some, in some ways he tells us that thesis before he explains himself. Yeah. As we start to work through the Torah and then the rest of the Bible, mm-hmm. we learn a lot more about God. And mm-hmm. as we learn more about God, we can start to see similarities and connections between how God acts and mm-hmm. what he's capable of and how we act and what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Also in the way God tells us we have to act, that tells us something about what he demands of us. Mm-hmm. And it appears as though the reason he demands that of us is because we have a certain moral status. Okay. And so, for example, when he says, he gives the Ten Commandments, for example, mm-hmm. that seems to be built into like a moral criteria that we have that nothing else seems to have. Yeah. So it seems highly likely and very directly likely that it's because we're made in his image. Which is probably why then when in the Old Testament you have all these laws and God's mm-hmm. creating these laws, um, sometimes nowadays people want to say that like some Christians want to act like the Old Testament doesn't really matter anymore. Or like mm-hmm. it's a new covenant, which is true, but God, God still created those laws. So in some to some capacity, we should respect them and understand them as how God works, Right. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to say it too—so there is part of a caveat because in the Old Testament, God is working with the reality he's He's inspiring his word into, mm-hmm. but also he's using his universal character out of which to speak, right? Yeah. A good example of this is like slavery in the Torah, right? Mm-hmm. Like slavery was utterly ubiquitous. There was no social safety net. Mm-hmm. It was a mechanism of economic things and so on. And so like he heavily regulates it, but in that era of God's people, he doesn't abolish it, right? Most sure. people— Theologians call that a divine concession. Okay. He's moving humanity in the right direction, but they don't have the institutions and they mm-hmm. don't have the things that they need yeah. to have, like universal freedom. It's just a bunch of people going, and so he's got to right. deal with that. Yeah. Right, because slavery, slavery was the means of, of prohibiting starvation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and it was different. It wasn't like American chattel slavery, so people don't really understand how it functions anyway. So the point is, is that, um, but in a lot of commands, mm-hmm. the the expression of God's character in the command is very direct. Okay. Like, for example, you can't make an animal work seven days in a row. Like you have to let your animal rest on the Sabbath day. Yeah. Because even though it's an animal and you're a human, your relationship to creation is such that you rest because God rested. Yeah. Because God created for six days and rested on the seventh day. You create for six days and you rest on the seventh day and you let all other actors rest. Yeah. Because okay. you don't, you're not a slave driver in the world. You're a gracious creator in the world. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So one of the things that makes the doctrine of the image of God a little bit slippery is because there's a lot of things about the image of God scripture shows rather than says. Okay. Right. It like tells it, tells it like a story Mm -hmm. and you're supposed to understand the story and pick up on it because that's how humans have communicated for most of human history. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. And still now. So you're saying, and what Wayne Grudem said is you have to look at the entirety of scripture from the beginning to end to see how God shows himself through it. Mm-hmm. And so, and demonstrates our similarities. And demonstrates our similarities. Mm-hmm. So, then we have to start at the beginning, which would be in Genesis. Is there a di- okay? So, is there a distinction between the garden and what happens before Genesis three, and then what happens after Genesis three in reference to the image of God and how we're created in the image of God? Before mm-hmm. the fall, was were things different than they are now? Does this kind yeah. of get into complementarianism and egalitarianism? If you go far enough with it, probably. Okay. Yeah. But I think just to begin with, um, the human capacity to be a human being is neither formed nor marred at that point. So um, one of the things that people struggle with with Genesis 1 is because um, the human beings are are invited or tempted by the serpent to eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. 
part of what's stipulated there is not just that they're not supposed to eat the tree, but that they also don't have the knowledge of good and evil yet. When, hmm. when theologians say that the humans were in the state of innocence, they mean that literally, that they were like children. Yeah. So, so the question is, is that what God wanted? Intended. And the answer is, of course not. Right. So, oh. so see, sometimes people don't understand that Adam and Eve were at the beginning of a developmental process that God was mm-hmm. taking them through because he created them to send them into all of creation. So why did he create a garden? So he was holding them in there kind of like a, like the mother's womb or whatever until they yeah. were to go out. In fact, out a, lot into- of, a number of Old Testament theologians refer to, to primordial creation and particularly the garden as kind of like a womb or like a, a nest. Interesting. Like a place where you yeah. get kind of get your your very beginning training. So you learn how to like tend an apple tree. You learn the basics of yeah. what you name animals. And in doing that, God is empowering his image in you, teaching you how to be a human being, how to be his vice regent, how to be his co-creator. Sure. And then at some point you get to leave the garden. So sometimes people think of the garden as a thing we were kicked out of, we could never find our way back to. Hmm. In some ways, I think that probably is true because Eden means pleasure or paradise. Yeah. But at the same time, like... It's a good name for a baby too, right? Yeah. Eden. But at the, at the same time, like the yeah. point was when God creates us in Genesis 1, he tells us in Genesis 1, his purpose for us is for us to subdue the earth, mm-hmm. right? To work in it and to take, take dominion in it. Mm-hmm. Humanity can't do that from inside the garden. Yeah. Right? And so God's intention all along was to prepare human beings apparently and send them out mm-hmm. of the garden. Yeah. Um, but they weren't supposed to get the knowledge of good and evil from eating the tree. They were right. supposed to get it from God. And I think the reason for that is, and again, now we're getting to, into something a little bit speculative, but I think it's still pretty close, yeah. which is God w- was going to transfer his, his wisdom to them in a developmental process that some truths are supposed to come before other truths. Yeah. And if you get those out of order, if you like get, just get it all at the same time. It can jack your whole view right. of everything up. Right. Which is like why you don't show kids pornography. Why kids, <laughs> why kids aren't supposed to watch yeah. rated R movies. Yeah. Right. It's not like. Because otherwise, if it's wrong, it's wrong, and you shouldn't watch radar movies. Right. Right. Or maybe even PG-13 movies. The issue is, is like, kids shouldn't know certain things about sex before they know certain things about love. Yeah. And so, like, there's a developmental order. Yeah. Right? And and God was taking Adam and Eve through that developmental order so that when he was done with them, they would be complete humanity. Yeah. And they didn't they didn't learn the first lesson, which is the first lesson is the fear of the Lord or trusting Obedience, God. Yeah. They just didn't do that. So, okay. So, and I think this all stems from a place where I even think for myself when I'm reading Genesis and I'm reading through the, the fall and I think like, okay, so as soon as they ate the apple or not the apple, whatever fruit it was, mm-hmm. probably better than an apple. Apples are overrated, but probably, as, probably a mango. You think it was a mango? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so as soon as they ate that, the, the I think in my head, and I think what most Christians think is, that was like Pandora's box, and sin and evil entered mm-hmm. into existence. But that doesn't make any sense because Satan was there beforehand, and he was evil. And so mm-hmm. I guess what you're saying is starting to make more sense in how God was going to teach them and form them to interact with good and evil. Because I, in my head, I was like, they're not going to need to interact with evil because evil doesn't exist, but it did exist. So in mm-hmm. what ways do you think that we would have ended up having to interact with evil? It would have probably been different if we would have been obedient yeah. to God's word. So it would have just been like, the snake's going to come every couple months and he's going to try to get you guys to do something stupid, just say no to him? Well, I mean, part of the issue is, is like, there is the, there's the regress issue in evil, right? Like, so let's say, let's say that Satan was the first to do evil. Let's say that that's the right way to read Isaiah and Ezekiel. Um, so what that means is, is that there was a time before Satan was a sinner, so to speak, like a, or he, before he was rebellious, that he wasn't, hmm. right? So how did that happen? Okay. So what that I think that that means fairly deductively is that you can be without sin, and the idea of sin can occur to you. 
and you can even choose it without being fallen. And so God allowed this, like, he allowed a balance of good and evil from the time of not just the beginning of creation, but that... This Maybe, is but that's not my point. Okay. Well, my point is, is that even... So imagine if there wasn't a Satan. Imagine there were no angels at all, right? Yeah. Nothing like that. There, mm-hmm. were, there was God. He just, he was immaterial, but he created a material universe. He created material human beings. Yeah. But that's it. That's all the, the selves or the persons there are in the whole world. Yeah. God and human beings, yeah. right? Could a human being that hadn't fallen conceive of, choose, and act out a sin? And if it's possible for angels... I don't see why it wouldn't be possible for a human being. So in theory, at least, Adam and Eve could have been, become sinners without the snake. But sin had to exist. Well, what, or, se- or, or, what seems like, to be the case in terms of the narrative is that sin did already exist. Yeah. It had already been committed and acted upon by the, by the serpent, if he, assuming he represents yeah. Satan too, right? And that, so there was sin in these angelic beings or whatever already in creation. Yeah. But in addition to that, Adam and Eve, I think, had the capacity to fall into sin. And I would argue that's probably connected to the capacities that are part of the image of God. I don't want to go too too deep in a rabbit hole, but I know that I'm thinking this and that people who are listening are going to be thinking this. Is why then would God allow for the, the thought or idea of sin? Why would he allow sin to exist? And I know that might not be an actual answer. I mean, this is what everybody is always saying. Why would a good God, a loving God, allow sin and evil? And so that's a good question, though, because... If he didn't have to, like, if he didn't have to, like, if the concept of evil and sin wasn't even there for somebody to think of, mm-hmm. then we could just live perfectly and holy. But how, why, why, what's the purpose of that? Why, why is he doing this? Yeah, I think that people sometimes mistake um, evil for malevolence. So that, like... You sound like Jordan Peterson when you say... He uses malevolence he loves all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but, but sometimes people think that. They think that, like... Evil is hatred or something. Hmm. And I think that, like, in the garden, like, this, the serpent doesn't convince Adam and Eve to burn the garden down or to chop down the knowledge of tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Right? They, they, they take the fruit and they eat it. Yeah. Because they want to become gods. Yeah. So I, I think that the issue is not that, like, evil enters the world, like, where people just start hating and killing and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Hatred and killing, violence and injustice are the fruit of the tree of idolatry. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't think it's that unnatural for a creature made in the image of God to fall into self-idolatry. I think mm-hmm. that's actually the most difficult temptation of a creature made in God's image. Yeah. Right, to find the humility that you we found in Christ. Mm-hmm. The one who had no need for humility. Yeah. And was more humble so, than the most humble human being. Yeah. Right. And I think that, I think that's why humility is one of the most absolutely critical virtues of human beings because we're made yeah. in God's image. It's very easy for us to think that we're gods. Yeah. And, and we have the capacity to do like a lot of really, I don't want to say like good things, but great things like a <laughs> huge, we could do a bunch of stuff on our own. Like yeah. that's why people are successful and, that is interesting because I think about myself and I'm like, I could probably do a lot of a lot of things for me. And it's like, that's that's the self delusion, and then it starts to become as soon as soon as that success that ball starts rolling, then people start thinking it's about me and I'm God. That's interesting. Right, you yeah. become an end in yourself. Yeah, and that's that is the fundamentally idolatrous thing because yeah. you are meant to radiate the glory of God. God yeah. God's working through you in creation. Yeah. So okay, so okay, we're we're in we're in the garden. The purpose of the garden was was to at some point maybe leave the garden under. I think so. Ma- yeah, mm-hmm. ma- yeah, maybe right. Uh, 
under like the assumption that they had gone through all the steps that needed to get to the place where they were. Uh, yeah, they had I think the I was planning a yeah. process of development, but okay. they had to learn lesson one and they didn't learn right. lesson and one. Right, and we effed that up. And so now we're on Genesis 3 and yeah. we have all these sins as a result of this thing. Mm-hmm. And which which some people would be like, well, that's just stupid. I mean, God couldn't even get his people through lesson one. But at the same time, like one of the revelations of the whole of scripture is if you really do learn lesson one, you learn all the rest. The, and, and the lesson one would be the fear trust of God. God. Trust God. Or trust mm-hmm. God, okay. If, you, if you'll trust God, you'll learn all the rest of the lessons. Yeah. Um, and if you won't, you won't learn any of them. Yeah. That's why faith saves. That's why the fear of the Lord is the beginning. But that why, that's why yeah. every statement that, like, Christian faith is believing God is there and trusting him. So there's so much that you could talk about. That, mm-hmm. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom, does that mean then faith begins with a fear and not with mm-hmm. a, like, this is why it's important in how we share the gospel? And, and how we say things and how we speak these things about? I don't think I've ever met an actual human being that I believed would consistently trust God in all things and follow him decisively who didn't have, who didn't fear him as God. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You, you said, I can't remember. If I don't think that with, takes away from love. Yeah. No, I don't think so either. But a lot of people who are my age would be like, well, God's mean and I don't want to serve a God like that. And that's... Yeah. I guess that's just, you just got to deal God with is, that. I, I think that you have to have a compli- complicated enough view of the world to realize that God can be terrifying yeah. without being mean. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So, Garden of Eden, now, after that, does does the image of God, how, how has our image in God been changed through Genesis 3? After Genesis 3 happens, now we're infected with sin, and yeah. now we're going forward. How has things changed? And and this is this this is why I, the reason why I want to ask this is because I think this can determine how you interpret the rest of the entire Bible, mm-hmm. and it can. And dude, I don't know. I'm just going to throw this out there. I don't know if people are going to be mad at this, but I don't know if you can interpret the gospel correctly yet from the lens of an egalitarian. I mean, you certainly can if you're an inconsistent egalitarian, and most of us are inconsistent in our flaws. I mean, I'm certainly not. If you looked at all my theology, I'm sure that you would be able to find inconsistencies if you were, had sufficient cognitive ability. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so I, yeah. So I mean, I don't have cognitive a sufficient cognitive ability, so, so uh, I can't. Like, <laughs> so I, yeah, I mean, like, I, if it's true that all truths hold together, and if it's true mm-hmm. that complementarianism is true because of its understanding of the human person, mm-hmm. um, and if um, Marriage represents Christ in the church. Yeah. And that's inherent in theological reality. Then it's arguable that there is something significantly flawed in the egalitarian understanding of the gospel. Yeah. Yes. I think there are also excesses in complementarians' views of how human relations lay out that may miss some insights into the gospel that egalitarians see because of their bias. Sure. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think egalitarianism and complementarianism can function as bias, interpretive biases. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think just like, I mean, you'll probably hate this, but I have very little love for or interest, well, love for critical race theory, but I've read several hundred pages of it and there are insights that I feel like I have gotten in my understanding of the world from reading it. I don't hate it. I mean, but I, I just, but I, but I wouldn't, but I don't agree with the philosophy. No, well, like, I, I don't hate it. Firstly, you know, I, I, I think critical race theory is. No, I mean, I, I thought I said you might hate that. I'm, I would say no, this. I'm but, telling you right now, yeah. I don't hate that you're saying it because I'm doing the campaign in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And one of our big things about critical race theory is that 
if you want to unite, like I generally think it's dumb personally, but you have to find there are some things in it that are rooted in some sort of truth. Mm-hmm. And to get people to come together, you can't throw out their entire philosophy on mm-hmm. education or something like there, that. Yeah, there are a few things that I would say that, that it taps into about human beings that are superior than some of our other views. Like I like the intertwined nature of of evil and how we are in, like implicitly connected in things morally in mm-hmm. ways that are very difficult to tease out. Yeah. I think that you have to look at morality that way to understand the depth of our depravity. Yeah. At the same time, I don't know that you can execute justice through, on the basis of that, that. Yeah. because it's too intertwined. Yeah. Um, so in the, in the Bible and it's too one dimensional, right? Well, with, with the Bible, what the way God seems to tell people to behave is to say, you should act with justice and honorably mm-hmm. so as to minimize your sin so that you're not constantly in complicit and in intertwined in the all these evils around you. Mm-hmm. However, here are the straightforward commands you must not do and if you transgress them you will be you will be you'll face justice in these ways. Right. Right? Then God will judge in the end yeah. all the intertwined stuff. Sure. He can tease it all out and tell you exactly what you deserve. Yeah. Right? And when we as human societies right. through our governments think we can do that exactly. final thing that yeah. God does I think it's naive. To yeah. think we can, now that doesn't mean there might not be a few ways we can do it approximately. Yeah. Like, uh, like you know, we might say like, th- like this list of two thousand people that tried to buy houses in Chicago and got redlined. We like mm-hmm. literally know it, and that's like two generations ago. Those people are still alive. Yeah. They deserve a reparation paid from the government mm-hmm. to them because of assets lost. And we, right. like that might that might be rights to do, but yeah. we're not going to be able to tease out much longer and more dynamic and more intertwined yeah. things that like happened in the 1740s right and how they should imply something now mm-hmm. and do that justly i don't think that's possible no right and but we... i do think god will i think in final judgment yeah i think he will right you know which is what gives peace to the to the to the christian or what should give peace to the christian in the mindset that the ju- the judgment of everybody else doesn't really rest on your shoulders it rests right. on the shoulders of god and and that's terrifying. That's ter- It sucks for every for you and because for if you know else. God will keep track of oh. if, you, if the image of God in you yeah. is so meaningful, yeah, that your moral actions matter yeah. as well as their interwoven tales yes, into right. the fabric of humanity, yeah. and you have no idea what those are. Yeah, the level of humility and the repentant right. attitude you yeah. have, calling on the grace of God to forgive you right. and to undo you continuing to right. do that would be super high and yeah. in some ways I know people who, who are really big in critical race they would be like that's all I'm asking for Yeah, I want you to do that right now. and yeah. I'm like okay that's very I think that's very Christian Yeah, but I think some of the it's some of the political philosophy that gets embedded, embedded. that I think comes yeah. I, did, I do think comes in through Marxist and revolutionary traditions what I've learned that I think are yeah. very inhuman and, and don't treat people in the image of God yeah. and so I reject them politically I'll, what I'll say is I, what I've learned through doing this campaign is that that type of ridiculous like worldview it doesn't only come from the left like i always thought that it only came from the left because i was just like you know marxism socialism critical this is just stupid dude people on the right are just as willingly ignorant to their own personal actions as anybody on the left and they just do it in a different way and it pisses me off because I went to a Trump rally I went to a Trump rally guys whatever stop listening if you want but but I went to a Trump rally during the thing and mm-hmm. during the election and yeah. I'm there with a couple of my friends and there's a bunch of old people around and they were like why do you young people come here and, and me and two of my friends were, like, were just telling like yeah we just like we wanted to see the president we just thought it would be cool and, and we heard that these things are fun and mm-hmm. they're like they start to complain about something they're like yeah man the Democrats are ruining this country and like man screw these guys and 
and like the, our public school systems suck and our kids are getting brainwashed. And I, I kind of was like, I kind of agree, <laughs> but I was like, you know, you're their parents. You could also teach them the right thing. Like the responsibilities on the parents too. And I started saying this in this group and like everybody in the group turned away from me and they stopped talking to me because mm-hmm. they didn't want to take personal responsibility for, for their own kids. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that was when I first felt like I got hit by kind of a truck. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, so Republicans suck and Democrats suck. You can't fix this through politics because mm-hmm. everybody's got their five talking points. And so it was interesting for me to see that, that like the answer, I think that's one way that God used it to be like, your answer is not in politics. Yeah. Your politics is a vehicle that can be used but it's not the end all be all yeah so to try to swerve this a little bit back to the yeah. how it's directly yeah. related to the image of God um, one of, the, one of the, the discussions that happens in the literature on the image of God is to what extent are we supposed to see the image of God as a communitarian like as a social mm-hmm. reality this takes you back before the fall again but mm-hmm. it, it, the, fall, the fall affects it obviously as opposed to an individual reality Right. Because for a lot of like Republican minded people or people like they focus on the individual nature of it. Yeah. It's like we have dignity. We have internal human capacity. Therefore, we can invest in our human capital. Therefore, we can yeah. work. Therefore, we can be responsible. Therefore, we right. Mm-hmm. And so you can have a strong doctrine of individualism that flows mm-hmm. out of the image of God. And I think rightly, I think mm-hmm. very rightly. Yeah. At the same time, God creates men and women. He creates them for each other. He yeah. gives the call to them as this new race that he's created. Yeah. Humans. And um, the stuff that he calls them to re- like both require and he actually gives them commands about their social relationships with each other. Right. Starting with his first and only institution before government, which is the family. Yeah. And there's no concession with the family. Right. He invents the family before the fall. Government is a concessional institution. Yeah. Because he concedes it. Even the church is concessional because we should have never needed the church. Yeah. But under the fall, the church is necessary for his plan of redemption. One way that I think Tom explained it to me this last week was, um, what's the verse? Uh, wh- the one was like love, justice, or no, love, yeah, mercy. Yeah, like a six a. What, what does it say? It says, it says something like, I've shown you a man what is good and what the Lord requires, requires of you to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So Tom was like, most people love justice for others. They do they do mercy for themselves. And and that and that's like, that's kind of the political, like... Well, they want other people to receive justice negatively. They want them to, to receive right. their justice. They want and they want to get they justice. Get their, their, right. Yes. And, and they're so, merciful towards themselves as opposed to giving other people justice. Right. And right. That's play, that plays out in all the political spectrum. Neither of which is walking humbly with your God. Exactly. Yeah, everybody, you nobody wants to do the humbly. third part exactly. of that Exactly, because that requires you to do the first two. And so that's what, that's interesting. So how then, right, so so our image of God and how we're supposed to interact with that based upon the fall after Genesis 3 going forward, it, 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 it seems like it's kind of based off of how you view, view our goal as humanity from that point on, yeah. to recreate the garden or to live within the natural world that we live in now mm-hmm. based upon the fall. And so going forward yeah. now, us as human beings, how are we supposed to interact with our image of God and how we view ourselves in accordance to the word yeah. and that? Yeah. Okay. So there's there's like four things that come out immediately. Okay. So but in Genesis 2, before the fall, you have the humans relating with God pretty directly and very well. Mm-hmm. You have the human beings relating to each other, right? The first song in the Bible. So you could argue Genesis 1 as a song. I don't know if that's correct or not. The first thing that is clearly in poetic verse as a song is Adam singing over Eve when he meets her, right? This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called a woman, right? She probably thought that was hot. Yeah, she was like, right. And then, <laughs> and then they become the first family, yeah. right? Okay, so then they 
and and so and then they're given the creation mandate they're supposed to take dominion over the earth and so on yeah. right so then they come in and so then they, the fall happens right mm-hmm. and then one there's clearly a disjunction between them and god mm-hmm. right so that relationship is now broken in some kind of way that's really important mm-hmm. secondly god um says that there is a curse that will that will um, manifest itself in their relationship with each other mm-hmm. that you see he says your desire will be for your wife um, but he will, or your husband, but he will rule over so, you, he says yeah. life, right? Yeah. That is not, see, one of the things I think egalitarians get woefully wrong mm-hmm. is they believe that that's when hierarchy begins. Yeah. I do not think that's true. Well, it can't be. It, I think that, I think that that, what happens there is that she's saying you as a woman will exert your desires on your husband mm-hmm. and try to get him to do what you want. And he will rule over you, meaning he'll use his strength to control you. Hmm. So it's kind of like the... Like women are the neck, mm. men are the head, women are the neck, right? Yeah. It's like women have a certain way they yeah. try to manipulate and have an economic or power relationship with yeah. their husband. And husbands usually use their strength yeah. to like empower, like use their power on their wives instead of use their power to not be harsh with them, to protect their wives. You, you see this all the time in marriages, like oh, marriage issues. I think about my own parents. It's like, right. yeah. It's well, literally the most common one because yeah. it's literally the, the first the, thing the, God says is going to yeah, happen. Right. Because I think he's arguing that it's embedded in masculinity and femininity, yeah. broken. Masculine femininity not broken is the strength of the man is a blessing to the wife and the, and the wife's strengths and abilities are a blessing to the husband. Yeah. They function in circular complementary blessing. They complement each other. Right. Yeah. Once the fall <laughs> yeah. happens. And, yeah. and egalitarians would agree with that. Yeah. That human, ma- human maleness and human females are meant to be complementary. But the question is. They believe that that does not order hierarchy. hierarchy. Yeah. Right. Right. And that's where the question lies is, is whether do, do we interact with these strengths and weaknesses based off of a hierarchy or do we interact with them in a in a in a more equal right. playing field? But relative to the image of God, the more important hierarchy is God humans creation. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there's a hierarchy between man and woman, which I think there is, relative to the family at least, right? Um, the most important hierarchy is God humans creation. That we are. There's no point where it says in Genesis one and two, man take dominion over your wife. Sure. It is said in Genesis 1 and 2, human beings go and take dominion over the earth. Yeah. And so that's the stronger the dominion, the more hierarchical, the more exacting, the more yeah. um, I mean, undeniable the hierarchy. In the New Testament, it says, doesn't say take dominion over your wife, but that that uh, It says to wives to submit yourself to your husband. Submit yourself to your husband. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I believe that there is an intentional hierarchy, at least within the family. And yeah. I think it carries over to the church because the church functions as the family of God. Yeah. Um, and, and Calvin's view is that women can be presidents and like anything outside See, of the family yeah, of the church. Yeah. You, th- there's like an organic first principled nature of those two institutions. Yeah. They have to function in gender complementarity by their nature because yeah. they're both procreative and developmental. But but economically, politically, yeah. Calvin was like, I see no objection in the Bible no, the, to women being in positions of power. So you can have a... You yeah, can, but should you? Which seems weird to people. They're like, so wait, a woman can be literally the president of the United States, yeah. but she should submit to her husband um, in like in a certain kind of ordered way, scripturally. And yeah. Calvin would have said yes. Exactly. No, I, I think I agree with that. But, the pro- that, then, but then people say, well, does that mean the man is, is de facto president? <laughs> right. And, well, well, I and then I the, the answer to that is no, no, because the woman is the president, right? And so, 
But but the question then would be, should women do that based upon what we know about the natural? Like, like I think there's like a statistic out there that like women who are like CEOs are far more depressed and like suicidal than mm-hmm. men who are CEOs or executives yeah. and com- companies and stuff like yeah. that. And it's well, like, yeah, part of the, should you even go yeah. down that route? So, okay, this is part of the problem with, and, and P- Jordan Peterson talks about this too. I know that you've listened to this stuff where he talks about how like there are distributions of how humans tend to behave. And then there are like there are going to be people that aren't going to disagreeableness. Fit that. Right. He talks about disagreeableness. Right. And so like there there's like a, there's like a distribution for women yeah. that like women most women are going to be happier XYZ. Yeah. But there's going to be someone where like that's just not going to be the yeah. case. And so I think one of the things that people in modern culture struggle with is the difference between um, normal and weird versus normativity, non-normativity. Yeah. Right? Like there's some things that you cannot be like that and right. not be weird. It's interesting because the women who probably who who probably are more there's probably less women who are more set up for like a uh, executive position or something like that. So like because of their tendencies and based upon That's possible, yeah. Yeah. And so those ones end up getting into those higher positions in the uh, sphere of influence in economics and in politics and stuff like that. And so then they start to drive the narrative for other women because they have the loudest voices. And then I feel like other women start to see, okay, wait a second. So then they're like, I did it. So then other women should be doing it. But then most of other women probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. Yeah. I think that I think the guy's name is Stephen Rhodes, who wrote the book Taking Sex Differences Seriously. And one of the things that he argued is, is that like there is a significant hormonal difference that essentially makes two groups of women. So most men are driven by testosterone as their main driving yeah. um, like hormonal force. But like some women have more testosterone than others. Mm-hmm. Right. We think of estrogen as like yeah. the woman hormone, but women have a mixture of testosterone and yeah. estrogen. So there's some women who are like, it's all estrogen, no testosterone. Yeah. And these are the women who are like, I love my husband. He's so great. I yeah. cook this thing. Right. And like, honest to God, that's who they are. And they don't want to run a company. Yeah. And then right? there's my mom right and the, <laughs> the opposite of right. that so yeah, yeah. and so you, there are some women so some of the women who are, who are fun for so- sociologists to study are like women athletes who play college sports yeah because these are usually the high testosterone highly competitive women yeah. right and so there are some ways if what you research how they feel it's very traditional mm-hmm. like if you ask like the research done among them about hookup culture mm-hmm. they were like morally they thought hookup culture was fine mm-hmm. but they felt dirty and abandoned participating in it when they, were they hated it really right emotionally but they're like no you can do it it's totally fine because it's a competition these are athletes yeah. they're like it's a it's a yeah. sport yeah but like when they actually did it they felt awful yeah because they're women and they're connected to their sexuality in a certain kind of way they don't yeah. want to be abandoned yeah right right and yet like well, that's why all these fe- like in feminism, all these like a lot of these blanket statements don't really help right. women. So, yeah, what Rhodes argues is that um, what feminism is in its most aggressive form is these high testosterone, high achieving women who are not naturally within the normal distribution of maternalness. Yeah, that they want to live a different life than yeah. these other women. And, and it's actually driven by their temperament yeah. and partly their hormonal temperament. And these women want these other women to help them yeah, <laughs> because they're fighting. They think they're fighting like all of masculinity, yeah. which in some ways they have. Right. And so they're like, dang it, you other women, would yeah. you please fight with us to, so we can get yes. what we want? And right. in that sense, you can be like, oh, that's a really interesting psychological way to look at yeah. the movement of feminism. That's, that's politics. And I think that there's some truth to it. There's That's how politics is. So like, I think that's the whole thing is that politics should it should be the study of how you should like govern a bunch of a society and mm-hmm. what it becomes is like a is a basically a power grab using like five or six different key key phrases or key mm-hmm. like that's what politics i've seen is just like 
the Democrats have their five key points and the Republicans have their five key points and mm-hmm. both of them don't get anything done. And that and that sucks. Yeah, none of those are our country's biggest problems. Right. Mm-hmm. And and as people and as and Christians big problems. by being yeah. created in God's image, yeah. I think that we should be as Christians, we should be um, we should be encouraging Christians to be thinkers and like people who are thinking about the eight billion different reasons that people are different and, and not not just one blanket over everything. And I think that that's mm-hmm. seeped into Christian theology and into our churches and into young people in my generation's outlook on Christianity that you can just think one thing and it will cover everybody. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 I that's just disrespectful to God. Like that to think that he's so one dimensional that he can only, that one thing governs how every single person acts and, and how mm-hmm. all these different outcomes are the exact same just because of one thing. That's I just think that's so dumb. Yeah. I, one of the sad things about politics in our country right now is that people are functioning off of intuitions they have that yeah. are pretty accurate, but at the same time, they're also wrong and unbalanced and so on. And, right. and oftentimes because you're speaking to a, a populace, yeah. you're like, you have to dumb things down lower than the level yeah. of complexity necessary to be right. Yeah. And yeah, it's difficult. So how do you want to bring this back to the image of God? Right. I I, so I think I think the idea that like there's an individual doctrine, like how does this function yes. for us individually? But there's right. also a social doctrine. Yeah. So there's there are the issues of our relationship with God was yeah. affected by the fall. Our relationship mm-hmm. with each other was affected by the fall. Right. That includes all relationships, but especially the familial relationship, that mm-hmm. first institution. Yeah. Also our relationship with creation but, and our ability yeah. to take dominion over it was affected negatively. Yeah. Right. So the ground is cursed, it says, right? Yeah. So doing stuff is gonna be harder. Yeah. But also our own capacity to function, that is childbearing is gonna be painful now. Yeah. Right. So there's that. So you so you have these these those three yes. things that like work taking dominion is gonna be harder. The relationship between the man and the woman is going to be harder rather than just a sheer blessing. It's mm-hmm. going to be a blessing and a curse. Yeah. And your relationship with God is disrupted. Then you move into like Cain and Abel and on and you realize yeah. that like more is happening inside the human person. Yeah. Right. The, inter- the inside of the human person has now been profoundly disrupted. Yeah. Right. Because the first thing that happens is you have like profound envy right. and resentment that leads to murder and so on. And then so, that just gets worse and worse and worse. Right. So then you have all these things that it feels like they're all stacked up against you and, and it seems right. like it's very hard to be a person. And so a lot of times people spend their entire life trying to convince themselves that things are better than they are when they aren't. Okay. And and maybe that helps people get through, through things that are hard. Mm-hmm. But this is the next question is how then as Christians should we... I, I, we had church this morning and somebody literally kind of asked us questions in the, in the AMA. It was asked me anything. And so how then should as Christians and as believers, how can we not get completely bogged down and depressed based off of like all these things are against me. Everything's cursed. Everything sucks. But also mm-hmm. understand that the, the answer to that isn't isn't maybe what modern psychology would just be like make yourself feel really, really good. And like, it's the answer to that isn't selfishness and self-delusion. You still need to be in touch and intact with the the way that the world is because of the fall. But how can you not be bogged down by that and still understand you're created in God's image? And how, what, what things can you kind of remind yourself of as a Christian? Because I feel weird when I'm like, I'm a child of God, but maybe I need to do that. You know, does that make any sense? I'm not entirely sure. So, so how can you... <sighs> not be depressed by the world that we live in, but also be effective in that you are created in God's image and that can carry you through this sinful world. Yeah. I mean, the, the the scriptures have a doctrine of hope interwoven all the way through them. Right. Yeah. Hope is a, yeah, I should have just said that. Yeah. (laughs) And so, but, but like there is a question of like, what is the basis for that hope? And I, I think that one is, is that God is working 
a work of redemption all the way through the scriptures, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's unfolding. Yeah. He's also giving people what they need to act in their life mm-hmm. as they should, whether that's moral direction in the mm-hmm. Torah, Ten Commandments, whether it's atonement in the sacrificial system, but he's giving them what they need to act yeah. in the world as it really is. One of the things that's great about the scriptures is once you get past Genesis 2, from 3 on, God doesn't say, you know, you frickers, if you just wouldn't have sinned, this wouldn't have, like, yeah, he keeps yeah. dealing with the right. world as it is. Yeah. And so God is interacting with mm. us and calling us to interact with the world as it is. And mm. so you don't have to be like, well, well, I wish I could just go back and forth. Well, yeah, that'd be great. But like, yeah, the, the you problem, you're in yeah. the, this world right yeah. here and God is working with us in this world right here. Yeah. Right? At this point in salvation history, we know a lot more about exactly how he's doing that. Christ has died for our sins. He's yeah. risen for our justification. That is, we could be forgiven. Right, mm-hmm. and we can be justified. That is, we can stand righteous before God. We're we're sanctified. That is, we are counted as holy, mm-hmm. but we're also free from sin. Yeah, we have the Spirit indwelling us. God has mm-hmm. given us His Holy Spirit to help us, mm-hmm. and He has given us authority to do His work. That is mm-hmm. to fulfill the creation mandate, but also to extend the redemption invitation or the yeah. Great Commission. And we're doing both of those things. So we know what we're here to do. We know God is helping us do it. Mm -hmm. We know he's doing it through his Christ. We know that there's a final ultimate hope where he will restore all things, Mm -hmm. not just to make them like they were in the Garden of Eden. Right. But the way if we would never have sinned, we would have done everything we were supposed to do. We would have filled the earth and done nothing but good in it and created the perfect possible civilization. Well, scripture starts with a garden and it ends with a city. Right. And yeah, a city that has gardens. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And built upon the garden, probably. But like, yeah. like it has to be built up upon something. And mm-hmm. you don't have a civilized like we don't take over land and then just plant more trees. What we do is take over land and then we put buildings and stuff in it and we build a society because you have to build like we do plant more trees, but we tear more trees down. I'm not saying that makes mm-hmm. any sense, but that feels like it makes sense in my head. Yeah. So. Yeah, no, I, I do think cities can be an expression of the image of God. That yeah. is, human beings coming together to cooperate with each other through too many ends and goods. Mm-hmm. And, and like, if you look at some of the great cities of human civilizations, a lot is done in them. Mm-hmm. That is really transforms mm-hmm. creation. But at the same time, uh, I don't think cities are generally looked upon with like with high favoritism. Yeah. In the scriptures, they tend to be looked at as places of debauchery yeah. and a low human justice and those yeah. sorts of things and to be the place where sin often emanates from yeah, and sure. where power corrupts and absolute yeah. power corrupts absolutely and yeah. all those sorts of things so i'm not 100 percent a kellerite like i don't totally agree with tim keller on everything he says about yeah. cities but I, I do think that cities can be expressions sure of the communitarian nature of the image of god yeah. when people come together they share all their gifts they do all their things yeah they can produce more than they would have done otherwise mm-hmm. I do think that's true. So then, personally, for e- for each of us personally, what's the what's the healthy balance between um, understanding your depravity and understanding your hope in Christ? What's the healthy balance? Because one can go too far, and the other one can go too far. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to say that you can go too far into the hope of Christ, but it can. It, it, you, I feel like you can. In you can some be ways. dismissive of your depravity and so not find your moral gravity. Because I think yeah. about some of these guys. You have guys up on the wall and stuff like that. These like mm-hmm. theologians and stuff. And a lot of the way that they spoke about like, or even my favorite song, "Amazing Grace," is like talking about myself as a, as a wretch. And we mm-hmm. they, a lot of these great theologians that speak about themselves in ways that maybe nowadays you don't really hear. Like talking about I'm such an evil, sick, de- depraved human. You don't hear people t- say that anymore. So I think that they're pretty smart. So like maybe they there's something to learn from them. How can we have that mindset and also be hopeful about the future? 
there's got to be a balance, right? You can't just go yeah. one way or the other. This is a personal question. This is like, how can uh, we look at ourselves this way? I mean, in some ways, this is a simplistic answer, but that's literally the argument of the book of Romans, right? It starts with making us look at our depravity, mm-hmm. right? It's telling us there's a gospel, and then it says, okay, now look. Look at how delusional human beings are. And so the the rest of chapter one, and then in chapter two, it focuses on religious hypocrisy that like, we say we believe in our own delusion, mm-hmm. but then what we really believe is that other people are deluded. <laughs> yeah. But there, he's like, one of the revelate things that reveals your delusion mm-hmm. is your inconsistencies. Mm-hmm. If you were willing to look at the hypocrisy of your own inconsistencies, you would see how delusional you are about your good. And then you would mm-hmm. see that verses 21 through 28 of yeah. chapter one, I was about you too. Mm-hmm. And then you would know you suck. And then he yeah. goes into chapter three, which is like, all of our mouths are open graves. And like he goes yeah. through all the evidences in the Psalms of how, how we're not just a little bit bad, but that we're, we're like really bad. way worse. Yeah. And then he preaches the gospel for six chapters. So there's an order. There seems to be an order. This is where mm-hmm. I, this is where I get fired up because I think right. that this goes into the, how do we preach the gospel to people in its entirety? And mm-hmm. if you look at scripture, there seems to be some sort of order of operations and how I should, if you're not a Christian, yeah. Where do I start? I don't. I don't think you start with the fact that like Paul Washer did a really funny thing about. He was like, if you tell a non-Christian like, oh Jesus, God loves you. There's a God that loves you, and he's like, I love myself too. So it's like, you what just a coincidence? Agree. Yeah, what a coincidence? I'll take two gods, you know. So like, you have to start with something, and you have to start with. Right. I have to start with you as yeah. a person and me. Yeah. If you were a deluded idiot, you would hate yourself. Right. And you would think God would too, because that would be sensible. Yeah. And I'm here to tell you that though you. You love yourself, but you should hate yourself. Right. And you'd hate God, but he loves you. Well, look and at that's Job. the problem you have to deal with to start with. Right. When yeah. Job met God, he was like, I hate myself. So, when he was in the presence of God, he's like, I hate myself. I mean, Francis Chan talks about that all the time. He's just like, if you're to fear God, you're probably going to end up hating who you are. You're going to be put into the state of humility. Yeah. Which, yeah. right. So, so the order is that you need to understand your depravity before you can understand the gospel. Yeah. And I think the argument of Job ultimately is, is that Job suffered maximally and he was trying to be maximally honest and trying to think about God's justice. Yeah. And so he had the highest possible motivation, mm-hmm. right? And he worked as hard as he could mm-hmm. to be honest because in all the things he didn't curse God. Yeah. And yet, when God actually mm-hmm. laid some of the, he just basically the dynamic of the difference between them out. Mm-hmm. Job's like, yeah, I shouldn't have even said anything. Mm-hmm. You're right. And, and you have to get to that absolute level of like, God is right. And you're mm-hmm. not. Okay. Before you can begin to learn, before you can start to have wisdom. So I guess th- this is going to be one way to kind of wrap all this stuff up is because I want this to be applicable to people who are listening to, to it. Mm-hmm. If I've recognized in myself, so we're going to, we're going to do two scenarios, but we'll talk about the first one. If I've recognized in myself that I'm somebody who is just so prone to only thinking about my depravity and it, and it almost cr- makes Christianity some performance based thing that I can actually never reach the performance level that I need to reach. But I'm always thinking about it that way, which by, by the way, that's like how I think about it all mm-hmm. the time. How then mm-hmm. should I combat that? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, so I do think the order of the book of Romans is good to like work through. Because one of the things that people don't understand about Romans is that it's not just law, depravity, then gospel, and mm-hmm. things are great. Yeah. It actually regresses at a point to psychological wretchedness. So it starts with you're depraved, mm-hmm. you're wicked, and you deserve condemnation. Yeah. And you go, oh crap, that's true. And he's like, now, yeah. the righteousness of God has been made known through yeah. Jesus, right? So you're like, okay, that's great. And then he says, yeah. he's like, the result of that is that nobody can boast, mm-hmm. right? And then it moves into the doctrine of sanctification, that like you are free, 
like you can persevere, all that kind mm-hmm. of stuff. And then you realize mm-hmm. you aren't doing it. Like you yeah. can't do it. So at the end of chapter six, and then the majority of chapter seven talks about human wretchedness, mm-hmm. that we're wicked and we're weak. Mm-hmm. And we are dominated by that in the practical nature of our lives. Yeah. Right. That's not the point of chapter three, which yeah. was to convict us mm-hmm. so that we could be exonerated by the death of Christ. Now it's like you actually stink at living. Mm-hmm. And so the question is now what? And the answer isn't Jesus died for you. The answer is Jesus set you free from the law of sin and death. So you mm-hmm. can live by a different law, mm-hmm. the law of the spirit of life. That is the answer yeah. is the Holy Spirit. Yeah. That there's a new spirit and power in you mm-hmm. that can fight that wretchedness and begin to transform you into a son of God. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. In, in practical reality. Yeah. And so then it goes through that whole process. So I, I, I think that that's a pretty psychologically healthy way to go through it, like to be con- convicted and condemned mm-hmm. and then exonerated. Mm-hmm. And then your status is supposed to be put aside. That's yeah. your status. Yeah. Now the question is, now the problem is your person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, like you do what you don't want to do. Right. You're wretched. So what's mm-hmm. the solution for that? And the answer is chap- chapters eight and following. And and it has to do with the Holy Spirit and walking in step with the Holy Spirit. Right. And if you don't know how to do that, listen to the last podcast because we talked about it. Me and Mike did. Yeah. So, or read Romans eight. Follow or read the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Or do both. But I'm of sure them. they're both. <laughs> okay. So on the other side of that, then you're somebody who's obsessed with the idea that you're a child of God and that's all you think about all day and that like basically like God loves you so much you know you know sin is like whatever you can kind of sin every once in a while and it's just, it doesn't matter so and, and you kind of disregard things so you've recognized I've recognized okay this is the type of person that I am so what do you say to that person what what do they need to do well how, how can they combat that to be more balanced um I mean it- Nick doesn't there's, have, you don't know. There's <laughs> a lot of answers to that. I mean, part of it is like, if you really do love God, you don't want to be a ridiculous idiot. Yeah, and until you true. find your moral gravity, you will be one. Mm-hmm. And the only way to really find your moral gravity is to grapple with your depravity in, mm-hmm. in the way God wants you to. Yeah. So, um, because there's so many ways in which you can't change unless you understand a little something about what you're like. Mm-hmm. And if you really are going to do that, on a moral and spiritual level, you have to see yourself honestly and truly on that moral and spiritual level yeah. or you don't even know what you're talking about. Right. And so if you do that, you will come face to face with your depravity, yeah. which will be great because it'll it'll give you a moral gravity. You'll yeah. be like, oh my gosh, my life is way more consequential than I thought. Yeah. Right. If you understood that doctrine of the image of God, you wouldn't have needed that teaching sure. because you would already know that you were a morally consequential being because you were made in God's image. Yeah. Um, but seeing your depravity and seeing the negative effects of your misuse of how morally mm-hmm. consequential your life is right. um, will help with that. And then mm-hmm. what that means is you start to know yourself better. You'll start to therefore know God's remedy better. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's, that's part of the process of redemption of becoming deeper. Yeah. There's, you can only become so, you can only go so much deeper as a human being if, if you're not willing to face your flaws. Right. And built in your flaws are all your like hurts and like things you need to heal from too. Yeah. And so... If you avoid your sin, see, see the part of the issue is, is like some there's some of it is sin you need to see as part of it of dwelling sin you need to repent of and you need to stop in your doing own it. Self, right? yeah. But what you also begin to find then when you start looking at it is that that's fueled by hurts. Yeah. And people want to deal with those even less. The reason, some of the reasons you're a perpetrator of sin is because you've been a victim of sin. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And and so those wounds are fueling your sinful reactions yeah. and responses to things. And people don't want to deal with that. Yeah. They'd rather do anything but deal with that. Yeah. And hmm. so part of the issue is is that if you if you face your depravity, it will force you to face your wounds. Yeah. 
And a lot of people who want to believe they're a child of God, they just look, I'm a child of God, I'm a child of God, right? And the right. problem is, is that you'll never really believe that. Yeah. If your dad abandoned you and you won't deal with that wound. Sure. And so then you, you're trying to like appropriate the, right. the your identity in Christ. Because you don't even know what it's like to be a child. And yeah, and of, you have this enormous yeah. wound of being abandoned and you right. don't know why you hate yourself. Yeah. And but the thing is, is like if you if you say, Why did I just sleep with that dude I met for two weeks? Yeah. I said I wasn't gonna do that. Yeah. I keep getting in these bad relationships. I love God, I'm a child of God. Why is this happening? And yeah. the answer is you hate yourself because you got abandoned by the person who's supposed to stand in for God and show yeah. you what it was to be delighted in love. Sure. That hole in your heart is so enormous and you've been ignoring it. And yeah. because you're in denial about it, mm-hmm. you don't really know why you hate yourself, but you feel right. incredibly empty and you just want to connect with somebody so badly and that That's person's true. there and so you yeah. do. Yeah. And you're probably if you really, really love Jesus, you could stretch it out to four or six weeks yeah. before you fall into somebody's arms right. out of self-control because you really love God, yeah. but you're not going to be free. Totally. And so, and I think that like a lot of those things come up when we face, our, we face yeah. why are we sinning? Why are we doing this? The answer is partly because you have these wounds right? and, and you need to heal. And the benefit, I mean, other there's a, the obvious, the true benefit is that you can then grow in your relationship with God and he can know you better and you can know him better through that. Another benefit is that through dealing with wounds, you start to be able to connect with other people who have those same wounds and bring them the gospel right. in a way that you can't, you're not even capable of comprehending now because you right. haven't dealt with those wounds. And mm-hmm. I, like Vince told me, is like usually like the people with the with the most trauma make the biggest impact in the church if they cope with it if they end up well, dealing no, you're with right. it they make the biggest on. impact either they like rape they, women in the yeah. church and molest people and yeah. make a huge impact yeah. or they deal with it and yeah. they're they're wounded healers and yes mm-hmm. exactly so that uh, kind of we kind of went all over the place but I do think that it's important for people to to get that down because I feel like everybody kind of goes on one end of the spectrum or the other end of the spectrum and the balance of these two things can bring about a ridiculous amount of like growth and healing as, as young Christians especially and so mm-hmm. we're like an hour in do you have anything that you want to like wrap this all up in like you do it every time you just like wrap everything up do you want to do that this time yeah and I do that- think I do think the caution that you had at the beginning that like it seems like people could take the image of God come up with some way that connects to something yeah, and there's just like put a stamp on it for whatever they want to believe in and right. that we should probably be more careful than that. I yeah. actually think that's a really good point. Mm. I get really annoyed. Um, I see Christian like environmentalist literature where they're just like, well, we're supposed to take dominion. That means creation care. Therefore, anything I say is good for the environment mm. is good no matter what its other impacts are. Yeah. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that annoys the econ- me. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, because, but, but at the same time, when people don't care about environmental conservation right, and they don't see a connection between us taking dominion over creation, hmm. they think dominion just means like you can use it however you want. Hmm. I think that's a really bad way of looking at it too. Sure. So I think believing in the image of God doesn't save you from other forms of thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it turns out we're still going to have to do our economic thinking. We're still going to have to do our political thinking. We're going to yeah. still have to do a lot of other thinking. And the idea that we're made in the image of God isn't going to solve the problem. Right. What the image of God really does is makes make us rationally and personally capable of thinking about these things in the first place. Yeah. And we're 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 really using the image of God and not just thinking and about being one of those the image things. of God right. as we do these things. Right. Does that if there's sense? thirty ways to think, thirty things to think about, and you've only thought about one. That understanding that you're created in the image of God means that you need to understand who God is, which is theology, which is a study of God, which means that you need to understand 
though all 30 of those things so that people can interact with those things yeah. and you can interact with those things right yeah what most people do is a heuristic is a like some kind of proposition or idea that you use as a shortcut mm-hmm. for your thinking right we have this like internal thing in our psychology where like when something happens our mind like decides really fast about it right yeah we also do that in our in our like cognitive thinking like when we know we're thinking about something mm-hmm. we'll have like four or five principles that we think are like good enough to interpret everything yeah and so and christians will do this i mean everybody does this right but like christians will have like a few theological concepts maybe a couple political concepts maybe a couple yeah. other things right and they're like yes no yes no yes right. no, just on the basis yeah. of like four or five things yeah and that's a really really dangerous and foolish sophomore way yeah. to think and it's better to be humble yeah and to believe you don't know anything yes. than to behave right. that way and the image of god is a very tempting doctrine to do that with and say mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. I'm made in God's image. <laughs> yeah. And therefore anything that occurs to me yeah. to be an implication of that is. Right. And, well, and that's just God, not a good way to think through things. You can make God's image your image, which is often often what we do. So then right right. So it's like it can become extremely divisive for no reason. Sometimes it's good to be divisive, but for no reason that's not good. Um Okay. Well we're an hour in. Yeah. And I feel like we talked about a lot. Yeah. Yeah, one one good example of this in politics is if you haven't watched a video of um, of Timothy George and um, who's the guy from Princeton he goes around with African American guy um, no, Carl Cornell West. Okay, Timothy, Timothy George and Cornell West. So Timothy George is like a Catholic. He's kind of he's he's served in Republican administrations. Yeah, he will explain what he thinks is politically prudent in the world on the basis of his political philosophy that moves out of human beings being valuable because they're made in God's image. Yeah, Cornell West who is more on the radical side of things, he's an African-American scholar, is doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, he sees this humans being made in God's image, but he sees capitalist systems commodifying human beings and treating them as objects sure. and that being a negative thing that we need to we need to do something about, yeah. right? And so they're, they're both super mm-hmm. intelligent men. I think they both love God and love each other. Right. And yet they're trying to reason through what that would mean in political prudence. How do we set up our right. society? And they have quite Completely different ideas diff- yeah, about it. Right. And some agreements like freedom of speech. Like they, both of them believe in the free expression of ideas. Yeah. Right. But they believe in different policy initiatives. Yeah. And how to inter- go yeah. towards that. And sure. I think like if you are relatively politically ignorant, which most everybody is, yeah. you owe it to yourself to spend an hour watching them talk yeah. to each other and being right. like, crap, this isn't as simple as I hoped it yeah, would be. Yeah, right. That's what I started to realize when I started to talk to you and then watch Jordan Peterson. And I know people don't like Ben Shapiro, but I think that he has... I started listening to him and reading some of his books, and it was like... The, 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 like Okay, like mm-hmm. these guys, even... like They're conservative, but they still have a... They still look at things like very similarly, where it's just like... This is way too complex. Like it's not very easy. So like, there's really good points on the left and on the right, but we're gonna try to find the best way to work them out together for the betterment of society, mm-hmm. and that's what we should be doing as Christians as well. So, that's a lot of stuff. Good luck sifting through that, listeners. But um, I guess I guess that's it. So, if you're watching this, make sure to like it and subscribe and do all that fun stuff. If you're listening, like, subscribe, leave a review. What are the other things that they got to do? I think that's it, right? Tell your friends. Tell your friends. Whatever. Tell yeah. your mom and dad. I don't know. Send Nick a nice email. Um, besides that, thank you guys for listening, and we will see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.